Last week, we began a sermon series in the book of Exodus. It is technically the third section of Exodus. There are five major sections, and we are doing a sermon series on section three. And that starts with the Passover. Uh, this week is the second lesson on the Passover. If you didn't get last week, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to it. You can do it. Uh, search Word from the Well on any podcast format. You'll be able to access our sermons. You can also find our sermons in the Well Worship Center app. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to week one of the Passover where I dealt with the heart, what I would say the major themes of the Passover. This morning, what I want to do is I want to look at some of the minor details of the Passover and show you the hand of God in every detail that God gave concerning the Passover lamb, how they all point to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be uh, working, as I said, throughout Exodus 12 and Exodus chapter 13. But one of the things I want to point out uh, before getting there is that the Old Testament, the New Testament alike, from the prophets to the apostles, they all point to and testify of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. First of all, in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There it is, the reference to the laying on of sin to the Lamb, Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, when John saw Jesus coming toward him in verse 29, John cried out these words, Behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In the book of Revelation, John refers to Jesus 28 times as the Lamb of God. We've got the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah. We've got the forerunner of Jesus and John the Baptist. We've got the apostle Peter and the revelator John all pointing to and referencing Jesus as the Lamb of God. The Bible is unmistakably clear that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. So with that in mind, what can we learn about Jesus from the Passover lamb? What are the similarities between Jesus and the Passover lamb? There are a lot of them. I chose 10 this morning. There are about 20 more that we could have went with, but I chose 10 to try to keep it in one message. And so I'm going to move through these quickly this morning. The first thing I want us to note this morning is that the introduction of the Passover lamb was to begin Israel's year. 
Look what Exodus 12, 2 says. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So, here's what God said. On the 10th day of this month, you're going to choose a lamb. On the 14th day of this month, you're going to, you're going to slay it. You're going, to, you're going to go through the whole process that we already discussed last week over the Passover. And then on the 15th day of the month, I'm going to deliver you out of this land. But here's what God said. On the first day of this month, from now on, that's when time begins for Israel. I want you to start your new year this month. On the first day of this month. What an interesting piece of the Passover. It is mind-blowing to me that we find the fulfillment in Christ, but not just for the people of God, but for the entire world. It was the coming of God's Lamb that would change forever how the world measured time. It wasn't His death. We measure time from the birth or the coming of Jesus Christ. And it's awesome to me that no matter how many, how many nations in the world would, would refuse the, the faith of, of the scriptures and would refuse to acknowledge Christ as Lord, they are still measuring time from the day he was introduced. We see that the God of time took his very nature and stamped it on time, just as it was with the Passover lamb. Number two, note that the lamb was singled out before the day of death. Exodus 12, 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. So the lamb was selected on the tenth day. But it wasn't slain until the fourteenth day. There are a lot of uh, different ideas on what the reasoning may or may not be, but God didn't tell them. I've read some that said, well, this would allow someone to select the lamb, and for four days, you know, it would be nearer to the family. This would give the family some time to some develop some form of uh, care for the lamb, especially the children. And that way, when it was time to sacrifice the lamb it would be even more meaningful of a sacrifice to the family. That very well may be so. The Bible doesn't tell us that, so I don't think we can say that emphatically. But here's what we do know. God, without an explanation, said, concerning this Passover lamb that's going to represent the lamb of God, I want you to select it before it dies. I want it to be singled out for death before the day that it dies. I don't want you to just wait until the 14th and pick a lamb and kill it. I want you to single it out. I want you to know who it is. And I want it for days to be declared this lamb has been marked out for death. We see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I've already read the text once, but I want to read it again. John the Baptist is baptizing, right? And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is before Jesus was even baptized by John, and really began his ministry. 
Jesus comes walking up on the scene, and look what John says to declare Jesus. In John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is singled out as the Lamb of God that would die for the sins of the world nearly four years before his death. Number three, notice the Lamb was to be perfect. In Exodus 12, 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. And then later when the law was laid down in Leviticus 22, verse 21, and when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted. Look at those words, to be accepted. It must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Now the moral significance is obvious. Nothing but a perfect sacrifice could satisfy the requirements of a perfect and holy God. We find this obvious fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect man of whom the word of God declares he was tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin. And when he was baptized, what did God say of his own son in Matthew 3, 17? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The lamb had to be perfect and our lamb, Jesus Christ, was perfect. Number four, when God laid down the laws of the Passover lamb, the lamb was to die in the fullness of its strength. I read in Exodus 25 that the male it was to be a lamb without blemish, a male a year old. The lamb was not to be too young or too old. They were not to select a weak lamb that had not grown up into its strength, nor were they to select an older lamb, even if the older lamb or the younger lamb was without spot or blemish. They were to select one in the height of its strength. We find this same language in the messianic prophecy found in Psalm 102, 24. Oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. So it was with Christ. He did not die for the sins of mankind as a baby. Or as a boy, he did not live a long life and then finally decide to give it up in the later years of his life. But at the height of his health, at that 30, about 33 years old, we see that Jesus, the Lamb of God, died in the fullness of his strength. I want to point out an interesting observation that we cannot overlook. Before I get to my fourth point this morning, notice the striking progression from verse 3 to verse 4 to verse 5 concerning the lamb. In verse 3, we have a lamb. In verse 4, we have the lamb. 
And in verse 5, we finish with our lamb. Consider the reality of this as it applies to Jesus Christ. In our blinded state of being, in our sinfulness, Christ appears as nothing more than just a lamb. Just one of many choices. We saw in him what the word of God would say is no beauty that we should behold him. But then when the Holy Spirit awakens us, when we come to see our sinfulness, the fact that we are unclean in the sight of God, sinners in the sight of God, lost in need of a Savior, and we come to see that Jesus is God's only answer for that. No longer is he a lamb, but he is the lamb. We come to see exactly why the word declares in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He's not just a lamb, brothers and sisters. He's the lamb. He's not just a way, a truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But the progression didn't stop there. He didn't just go from a lamb to the lamb. He becomes our lamb. I I spoke of this last week when we apply the blood. It's when we've repented of our sins, confessed them to God, cried out for forgiveness. It's when God has given forgiveness and filled us with his spirit that we can truly say he's not just a lamb. He's not just the lamb, but bless God, he is my lamb. Number five this morning, notice that the lamb was collectively slain by everyone. Look at the wording of Exodus 12, 6. The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Also pay attention to the word twilight. But first, let's focus on whole assembly. The whole assembly shall kill the lambs. Now that didn't mean, when you go on and read the instructions, that did not mean that every individual was to get a lamb and slay it. In fact, when you read the instructions, one man was to choose a lamb for his family. It also did not mean that once the lamb was selected, that the whole family was somehow supposed to play a physical role in the sacrifice. But God says, I want you to understand something. From my perspective, what's taking place is the father is representing the family. And the whole assembly, all of you, must slay the lamb. We see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The typology is unmistakable. Look at Mark 15, verses 11 through 15, tell us about the crucifixion of Christ. But the chief priests, there we have the religious leaders, stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate, there we have Roman leaders, again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, there we have everybody, 
released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. What am I trying to tell you, brothers and sisters? That the almighty Lamb of God was collectively slain by all of us. It wasn't just Rome. It wasn't just the Pharisees. It wasn't just the chief priest. It wasn't just the Gentiles. It was even the people of God that were guilty there as the crowd crying out, crucify him. We have all played a role in slaying the Lamb. Your sins nailed him to the tree. My sins nailed him to the tree. It was a collective work of all of mankind that crucified Christ. He was collectively slain by everyone. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Number six this morning, the lamb was to be slain in the final three hours of the day. I got annoyed at this point. I literally spent almost three hours to make a point that I'm going to get done with in three minutes. But I needed to make sure that what I was telling you was true. The word translated twilight is an interesting word. It's actually several words that we translate into one. In Exodus 12, 6, the lamb shall be killed at twilight. That is a phrase, not a word, and the phrase is between two evenings. And in our vernacular, there's a lot of time that happens between two evenings. Without tending the next two to three hours explaining to you everything that I spent doing trying to get to this point, here's what I'll tell you. It is a specific reference to the final three hours of the day. The Jewish day started at what we would call 6 p.m. at night. Night comes first and then the day. This is how it was in Genesis. Darkness was on the face of the deep and then God said, let there be light. So the Jewish day actually starts at 6 p.m. our time. They, they would call it the, the, the what we would call noon is for them 6 p.m. This lamb was to be slain then specifically in the final three hours of their, of their day, which would be between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Isn't it interesting? God gave them not just the day, but he gave them the time with which they were to sacrifice the lamb. Now look with me at Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 37, when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus. It says, when the sixth hour had come, Jesus is nailed to the cross already. The sixth hour was noon. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would be the beginning of this time translated twilight, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, that is, he died, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. 
the Lamb of God, died at the very same time that God had prescribed centuries, thousands of years before, centuries before when God had prescribed the time that the Passover lamb would die, we see that that is exactly when Jesus died, when the other Passover lambs were being, were being killed, was the same time that Jesus was dying. When I begin to study these things, can I tell you something that, that my heart was just overflown with the reality of how divine God's word is. You know, a lot of people don't know these things. There's probably people under the sound of my voice. You don't know some of the things I've already taught this morning. You did not know all the symbolism. But it is undeniably and it is provably a fact that these things that we are reading were printed and taught for years and years and years, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ ever came to this earth. And we see the divinity of the word of God pointing out for us. God saying, this is how you'll know who my son is. This is how you'll recognize him when he comes. All of these minor details were fulfilled in the one man, Jesus Christ, the lamb of almighty God. Number seven, note this morning that the death of the lamb brought deliverance. The death of the lamb brought deliverance. In Exodus 12, verses 40 through 41, it says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So that very day is the day that followed the Passover night. Now I want you to consider something, especially those that have been through the study of Exodus. So far in the study of Exodus, here's what we've seen about God. He's a compassionate God who hears the cries of his people. He's a God who devised a plan and sent them a leader to lead them out. We have watched God demonstrate his divine power and miracle working strength. As God has demonstrated, he is God over Pharaoh, God over the little gods of of Egypt, he's God over the sky, he's God over the land, he's God over nature. He has demonstrated his power over and over and over again through the plagues. And yet, here we are, and the people still are not delivered. It was not till death came that deliverance came. And that exact very same day that the Passover took place, Israel marched out a free people. We see the symbolism in Jesus Christ. The same thing is clear in the Gospels. We note the love of Jesus. We note the compassion of Christ. We saw the power of Christ as he walked upon the water. He calmed the storm. He delivered the de those that were demon-possessed. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. And yet, even here at the end of his life, there was still no full deliverance. Consider the reality. He died alone. Where were all these delivered people? They had been partially delivered. They had experienced the love of God. They would experienced some freedom to a degree. But in the end, they were still gripped by fear. They still had hearts that were afraid to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they left him there to die alone. The thousands had already left. 
And there on the final night of his life, you know who else left? His 12 closest. There he was alone. Consider this interesting statement that Jesus made in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. There he was, dying alone for you and for I. But something happened. Deliverance came when the Son of God died and rose back up. The first fruits rose back up from the dead. Something happens where we see these believers who are afraid. All of a sudden, they're not afraid anymore. We see these believers who went and cowered in fear. All of a sudden, something changes drastically, and they're no longer cowering in fear, but they're standing up against the authorities, and they're preaching until the day that they die. Jesus said it this way to his disciples. He said, it's good for me to go to the Father. Because when I do, he will send you a comforter. That's a reference to the Holy Ghost. Jesus said there's work, and there's work that can only be done. There's deliverance that will only come when I die. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, the death of Jesus, it changed everything. It changed it all in a moment when the Son of God shed his precious blood that our sins might be washed away, that we might stand righteous in the sight of Almighty God. It changed us forever. In John 20 and verse 17, we see Jesus make one of the most blessed statements concerning the church. It's something he had never said before. In all his years of ministry, he's risen from the dead here in John 20, 17. And here's what he says. Jesus said to her, go to, look at that word, my brothers. And say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father. To my God and your God. Jesus never called his disciples brothers before this moment. At first they were servants, then disciples. And then in John 15, we have, uh, you know, uh, the, the week before Jesus raised us from the dead, we have an even further progression. He says, you're my friends. You're not just my disciples, you're my friends. But here, something's happened between a week ago and here. You're not just friends anymore, we're brothers. We're family. You are blood bought and born again because of the finished work of Christ. Number eight, notice that the lamb was not to have a bone broken. In Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. What a curious instruction from the Lord. Slaughter it, kill it, sacrifice it, but be sure not to break any bone in the process. That's an interesting command. And again, the Lord doesn't give any explanation why. He doesn't say. The question is, are you going to trust God and obey fully or not? I don't know because there's not a whole lot else said about it and there's not a whole lot else I could find written about it. But it's my personal gut instinct to believe this happens to be one of the commands 
that the people of Israel maybe did not know exactly the reason behind it or the symbolism. I, I, I don't even know the symbolism. I've read commentaries on it, but I felt like they were grasping at straws. All we know is, as God said, don't break a bone in the process. Slaughter it, shed his blood, sacrifice it. You're going to prepare it. You're going to eat it. You're going to put his blood over the lentils. You're going to get inside. But whatever you do, do not break a bone. Look at the incredible parallel found in the messianic prophecy pointing to Jesus. In Psalm 3420, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Could it be that God gave us this particular command for no other reason than to point out to the entire world, this is my son. This is the one. Look what happened in John chapter 19 at Jesus' crucifixion. Verses 31 through 33. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Let's pull the scripture down there. I want to comment on that. So the Jews asked that their legs might be broken, that being Jesus and the rest of the people being crucified. I want to explain why they would ask that. I want to look at this from a physical standpoint and then a spiritual standpoint. Physically, the reason they were asking that is because when you were crucified, the way that you were crucified, your, your arms out wide, you would literally kind of hang down and it would make it difficult to breathe. Most people that died of crucifixion eventually just died from not getting enough air. But to prolong the process and make it worse, because crucifixion, crucifixion was horrendously a terrible way to die, they would put some type of a, a, a platform for their feet to stand on and they would be able to stand up enough to get a breath. And it would just prolong the process. It would just make it a miserable process. Occasionally, if they were not dying soon enough, and in this situation, because of Jewish laws, they needed to die before the sun went down. They said, we're running out of time. What we need you to do is break their legs so that, the implication there, so that they can't stand up to speed this up and get it over with. So from a physical standpoint, that's what they were requesting. From a spiritual standpoint, here's what we need to understand. Satan understood the messianic prophecies. Satan understood the symbolism. Satan knew good and well that it was prophesied that the perfect spotless lamb of God could not have its bones broken. And this is incredible to me that, not, that, that, that it was, it's not just that he wasn't to have his bones broken, but they requested it. It was asked in this moment of history, in this most pivotal moment of time, it was requested of Pilate that they break his bones. And Pilate says, yes. Let us read on. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus... And saw that he was already dead. They did not break the legs. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, 
This is a divine book. This is not the words of man. This is the words of a divine God who knows the beginning from the end and who has went to every extent possible to point out to the world, that is my lamb. That is my son. He was the spotless, perfect lamb of God and not a bone on his body was broke though it was requested and though it was granted by Pilate himself. Number nine. The blood of the Lamb demands sanctification of the redeemed. Exodus 13, verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So God says the firstborn is mine, consecrate it to me, set it apart to me. We're going to see that the animals were literally to be sacrificed to God. And the son, the firstborn son was also to be set apart to God, but he was to be redeemed. Israel was to redeem their firstborn sons throughout the rest of history. Looking back to the Passover. Here's the point. Remember, it was the firstborn that was redeemed on the Passover night. And here's the lesson. God says, what I've redeemed, I've purchased. It's mine. It belongs to me. It needs to be sanctified or consecrated. This speaks typically of practical holiness. Setting apart something to God. That which should be reasonable and expected. If God redeemed it, if the blood was shed so that it could be saved, it only makes practical sense that that thing that was saved should be devoted to God. God demands it, though we should desire it. Look what 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and 20 say. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. And then in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. The lesson is this. Personal devotion is the first thing that God expects from those who have been blood-bought and redeemed. God expects a sanctification to him. For those of us that have been bought with a price, it is our reasonable act of service to present ourselves to God and say, God, I am not my own. Number 10 this morning, also a very curious um, piece of the Passover going forward, the rules, the donkey was set apart to be redeemed by the Lamb. Look at the rules God gives Moses for Israel to keep when they get to Canaan. He says this is going to be something that, that you do as a, a part of, your, is, you know, of Jewish history. Look at verses 11 through 15 with me of Exodus 13. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that, the, that first opens the womb. 
All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your sons ask you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. How interesting is this? God said as a perpetual reminder of your deliverance, anytime any of your animals have a firstborn son, that firstborn son of that animal is to be sacrificed to me. And when you have your own son, when you have your own son, your firstborn son, technically he's to be sacrificed to me too. But you can redeem him. Just like I redeemed your sons in Israel, you can redeem him and sacrifice a lamb in his place. God says, but there's one animal of all your animals that when that animal has a firstborn son, I want you to redeem the firstborn son of that animal and slay a lamb in its place. And what was the animal? The donkey. The symbolism is pretty obvious. The donkey takes the place in this narrative. The donkey represents in this narrative those who have been redeemed. God says, you are like a donkey. And every time that you have a firstborn male donkey, I want you to redeem it as a reminder that I redeemed you. So what are the symbolisms that God's trying to teach us? Clearly, he's saying that we are like donkeys or that donkeys are like us. What are the similarities? Number one, a donkey is a stupid animal. We see the parallel of man in Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's what God has to say about you and I, men and women. As proud as sinful man might be, boasting of our powers to reason, 
conceited as mankind might be about all of our intellectual achievements and advancements, the truth is that we are utterly devoid of any intelligence. We are stupid when it comes to spiritual matters and that which matters the most, eternal things. The donkey is a stubborn animal. So the sinner is rebellious and defiant. He will not come to Christ that he might have life. We, even as God's sons and daughters, sometimes we are stubborn and rebellious. We know good and well what we ought to do, but we don't do it. The donkey was also an unclean animal, considered unclean. So in man, sinful, so is man sinful by nature, unclean in the sight of a holy God. Being an unclean animal, the donkey was cast out of the gates of Jerusalem upon death. Consider that symbolism. You find it in Jeremiah twenty-two nineteen. With the burial of a donkey, he shall be buried, dragged, and dumped beyond the gates of Jerusalem. The carcass of the donkey was thrown outside the gates of the holy city. So shall it be with every sinner who is not in Christ. He shall not enter that holy city, that new Jerusalem, but instead will be cast out into the lake of fire. The lesson that God intended was clear. Of all the animals that people possessed, none pictured them better than the donkey. Obstinate, stubborn, and at times downright stupid. And yet God said, I'm going to redeem it. Imagine every time that a man would have to redeem his donkey. Just try to put yourself in, in, in that time of history. Every time that man would think, I'm going to redeem this dumb donkey at the cost of my best lamb. And he would recognize, I am that donkey. It did not deserve to be redeemed. And when we look at Jesus, we see God say, I've redeemed you at the cost of my best lamb. Listen to me loud and clear this morning. God did not redeem you or I or any other human on earth because we were so lovely in his sight. It was not that he found something in us that was so incredibly valuable to him, he couldn't live without it, and thought, now that's worth the death of my son. What made us redeemable is that God's love is greater and bigger than, than, than our failures and our sins. It's that God's grace is greater than our sins. It's that the blood of the Lamb is sufficient to cleanse us of our filthiness and our wickedness and our unrighteousness. We had nothing to offer. God says, you're really not much more than a donkey. You're really not much more than a stubborn fool at times in your life. But nonetheless, I'm going to give my best lamb for you that you might live and he might die. The symbolism is, is so it's, it's mind-blowing to me. I really want to hammer this point home. It's the last thing I, I want to preach this morning. I just want to hammer it home. We have to take our proper place before God. Have you taken your proper place in this story? Have you owned 
the truth that you are stubborn in your ways, obstinate against God, defiled and unclean, undeserving of God's perfect lamb. Romans 5.8 declares, but God shows his love for us and while we were still sinners, <laughs> Christ died for us. Yeah, while we were still sinners, we weren't cleaned up, we weren't better, we weren't righteous, we had nothing to offer. I'm telling you, you were still a sinner. When God loved you enough to send his perfect lamb to die in your stead that you might be delivered. I'll ask our worship team to get in place this morning and I ask again, have you taken the place, your right place before God? Do you own that a donkey is really an accurate portrayal of all that you are? Unclean in yourself. Senseless, stubborn. Really fit for nothing other than having your neck broke. Does your heart honestly, truly connect with what the great apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Or are you like the self-righteous Pharisee this morning who in Luke 18, 11 said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. How do you see yourself before God this morning? According to Jesus' own words, this is what he said about himself in Luke 19, 10, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but the unrighteous. He didn't come to heal the healthy, but to heal the sick. But you'll never be made righteous, and you'll never be healed of your sins. You'll never be made right before God till you own your rightful place in the story and recognize You are a helpless sinner in need of a merciful, gracious Savior who stands before a just God. You know, in Luke 7, 47, there's an interesting statement. It says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus said, when you don't think you've been forgiven of much, you don't have a whole lot to think you should be appreciated for. But when we realize that the reality is all of us are donkeys before God, stupid animals, beasts that do not deserve to be saved, how could any of us feel like somehow we've got something great to offer? The irony is... That if we'll humble ourselves and see ourselves in that role, that true gratitude bursts forth when we realize God gave his best lamb for me and for you. He gave his best for us. How could we not be overwhelmed with gratitude? How could we not want to give him our best in return? How could we not consecrate ourselves to him?